clear. Hi. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm no, very excited. I'm excited too. It's, yeah. a bit, it's a little bit odd. Obviously, you know, very good friend. Um, and now I'm trying to speak to you and trying to be all professional, which is yeah, not going to be, which is going to be a bit odd. See how we go, right? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Anything can happen. Yeah. Anything can happen. It'll be fun. It will be. Yeah. It will be. We hope anyway. We hope. <laughs> Let's hope we're still speaking at the end of it. <laughs> I'm sure you will. <laughs> I'll be like, oh my God, what have I said? Why did I say that? It's because we're It's all right. I'm, I'm sure I've, I've heard worse. <laughs> you, you know I've heard worse. We've, we've been to, um, we were at a nightclub once, weren't we, Claire? No, in fact, we weren't at a nightclub once. We didn't get into We didn't get into a nightclub once. We're not talking about We're not going to talk about the nightclub. We're going to talk about that. It's going to be the shortest interview ever. We won't talk about the nightclub we didn't get into at all. All right. Too old. Yeah, exactly. That was the reason why. Yeah, 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 of course. That was the reason why we didn't get in. Yeah. Brilliant. All right. So, thank you. So, look, this is Didn't Get the Memo. And Didn't Get the Memo, the reason why you're sat here. Right. So, Didn't Get the Memo talks about. Um, people not following necessarily convention, not buying into the usual, not buying into the norm and doing things completely differently. Yeah. So I think it would be fair to say you as team principal for the Williams team, obviously, mm -hmm. in a sport which is run on the face of it, seems to be by men, mm -hmm. not many female team principals. Um, none now. None. Actually. Uh, you yeah. know, so I think it'd be very fair to say that you clearly didn't get that memo. No. So what were you doing? I mean, what, why on earth were you team principal? How? Why? First, I should say I wasn't actually team principal, unfortunately, well, okay. deputy team principal. And okay. I always like to say, because my dad was, and yeah. my dad did not um, ever want to hand over the TP title. But yeah. effectively, I, I ran the team as TP. Okay, so, 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 let, so let's talk about that then. Okay, okay. so you're not team principal. Mm. What does a team principal do? So a team principal, which I wasn't, but I was. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is what I was going to get the point. I was literally going to go for yeah, all the different yeah. things that a team principal does and say, did yeah. you do that? The answer would be yeah. yes. Did you do that? The answer would be yes. You were team yeah. principal. I, yeah, basically, uh, yeah, completely. And actually, we joked at the end of my tenure, like the last few years, the D in deputy team principal actually stood for de facto. Because I was, at yeah. the end there, I was running the team um, with my CEO and my dad was the figurehead. He effectively did step yeah. aside. And so I was doing everything. But, yeah, yeah. You know, all my fellow team principals were staring up and down the paddock. So you were doing exactly the same as anyone else up and down the paddock. You were just the... Yeah, deputy. unfortunately, I just yeah. didn't have the title, but that was fine. It was out of deference to my dad, actually, yeah. that I never wanted it or would take it. And your dad, he, he always would have wanted, you know, he would have wanted to remain as team principal, right? Um, he wouldn't have handed it over to anybody. No, no, and no, no. My dad was very territorial about that. Exactly. And, and that's right, why so. you were deputy. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but prior to being to, you know, deputy team principal, you had a number of roles in, in the Williams team. Mm -hmm. You started off, how old were you when you, when you actually started off with a formal role in the Williams team? Uh, before a formal role, I was like put to work from a really young age. How old? Um, so we used to get taken to the British Grand Prix when we were kids. And that was the only race that my dad would ever allow us to go to. I think maybe we went to the Dutch Grand Prix a couple of times when we were very, very little. So from the age of about seven or eight, and we were taken to Silverstone, um, you know, I was given jobs to do. And in those days, we didn't have the most, you know, these incredible motorhome structures that teams have today we had you know tiny camper vans and a makeshift barbecue that all the team meals were made on so I was invariably put to work in the kitchen doing the washing up or making cups of teas um, for the boys um, or making their sandwiches for lunch and I loved it yeah. yeah it was just the best time ever yeah what were the boys doing whilst you uh, were making the sandwiches boys, my brothers they were probably well my younger one at that point probably wasn't even born because mm. we're seven years apart my older one um, probably would have been in the garage because he was just obsessed sure. with the cars. Probably yeah. the tea making wouldn't have been quite up his street. 
so th it wouldn't have been up his street, right? But was it up your street? And, and but the point I'm getting at here, that it seemed from a very early stage in Formula One, there was a divide, right? You were doing yeah, the kitchen stuff. Brother was in the garage. Yeah. Right. And that trend seemed to follow you throughout your, your time yeah. in Formula One. And we, and we will come yeah. on to it in a moment. right? So, I mean, you... You, you then got a formal role in, in, in Williams at, at some point. How old were you when you sort of went to work? So I kind of started working in my school holidays when from the age of about 16, 17. And then when I left university, I got a job at Silverstone. Um, I was made redundant by them about three years into my um, role in the comms team. Went back to work at Williams because I didn't want to just sit around waiting at home for a job to miraculously appear. I went back to do what I always did, which was work in the travel office, booking all the race teams travel to the Grand Prix until a job came up. And coincidentally at the time, the press officer working for Williams resigned and the then- Nothing to do with you, when you weren't sort of- No, I wasn't no, giving okay. him, no, oh, no, no. <laughs> bribing her behind the scenes, that's my job. No, 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 because it was made very clear to me by my parents from a very young age that I would never work at Williams, so don't even think about it, you know, go off and make your own way in the world. Um, that is not your playground type thing. And anyway, so when that job came, it was like, well, they're not gonna, mum and dad are not gonna say yes to, to that. So may as well just keep, you know, putting the CV yeah. out there to elsewhere. Anyway, it materialised that my dad did finally capitulate after about three months of a bit of lobbying from the head of marketing, and I was given the job. So I officially started working for Williams in 2002. How old were you? Oh, no, no, let's not go there. No, in fact, I can't even, scratch I'm, that, like, because that's going to be too easy for people to do some maths if they don't want to look up on Wikipedia how old you are. Right? Okay, but anyway, you, you start working off as yeah. a comms officer, um, yeah. Yeah. and after that, do you move as a director of marketing? Yeah, but I was in the comms team for a really long time, mm. and I was really lucky. I had a brilliant um, boss in comms mm. um, who I learned so much from. He was wonderful. In fact, I was just talking to him on the phone this morning on the way up here. And um, I spent 10 years as the junior press officer and the press officer in my little pool of communications, and I loved it. And then very quickly, um, in from about 2010, I got a series of promotions. And it all, I think, really transpired because we, Dad employed a new CEO. And he hadn't had a CEO up until this point. He'd had one that didn't last for very long prior to this guy coming in. And then this new CEO came on board and he very quickly kind of did some restructuring right. and um, restructured some of the marketing areas and put me into the head of comms role. And in the short space of three years, I became I transitioned through head of comms to head of investor relations because we listed, um, to head of marketing, to being responsible for bringing all the money into the team. So I had the whole marketing, commercial, comms, brand, everything under my remit from 2010 onwards till I right. became DTP. So, I mean... By the time you become your deputy team principal, um, by the time you'd arrived in that position, you'd pretty much done most of the, would it be fair to say, you knew the business inside out, been in many of the positions within the business? Yeah, apart from designing the car. Apart from designing the Never car. Never allowed to do that. Yeah. No. Why was that? <laughs> well, that's not what my, you have to have an engineering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I suppose you can't just say, well, here's a car, no, there's no. a wheel, there's yeah, a wheel. Those yeah, guys yeah, are yeah, pretty yeah, smart. Yeah. I mean, I can't yeah. even draw like a, the most <laughs> basics of cars, But in terms of so. running the business, you had yeah. run it from start to, to, to fit. You, you'd been I'd involved seen in the a lot of right. it. And yeah. I think I was very fortunate in that I had worked in marketing. Because in working in marketing in an F1 team, probably a lot of businesses exposes you to a lot of senior management mm. and what they do today to day. And obviously, I was press officer for the CEO, for the team principal, for the director of engineering. So I was by their side a lot. 
not necessarily their day-to-day yeah. work, but I was able to be, I was exposed to what they were doing. Yeah. And that was really um, fortuitous, I suppose, and then it provided me quite a strong platform to understand what they were doing. And certainly the CEO who promoted me, I spent a lot of time with him sure, understanding sure. what was going on. But then I'd grown up within the team yeah. and I'd heard my dad talking about it year on year and yeah. you know the whole time. So having grown up within the team, I mean, you, you, you it's fair to say you grew up in Formula One, full stop, right? Yeah, so yeah. you knew other team bosses and so on and so forth, presumably. Yeah, it was really weird though. When I suddenly was put in that top job and suddenly I'm not Claire the press officer or prior to that, Claire Frank's daughter, or Claire, the really sweet little girl that used to go to races yeah. when I was 10, wearing a little Flora Laura, Ash- Laura Ashley dress. <laughs> you know, suddenly I was expected to be in these really high power, you know, pro- high, high power meetings with these other team principals that I had for most of my life revered and looked up to as my dad's colleagues and counterparts. And suddenly I was at the table with them, having to forge my own position mm. and kind of hope that I would earn some kind of respect that that group of people would listen to me and that's not even then taking into account the fact that they were all men in that room I was the only woman invariably out of 30 men around a table at pretty much all of those meetings so how did you get your voice to be heard then in that environment when you've got these individuals who have known you since little clear and uh, there's another question that I've got which is you know how do you think they, they saw you do they think it was a case of just Frank's daughters just here just making up the numbers bit of set dressing but how, how did they treat you I mean how did you, you know, so many questions that I'm just my mind's mm. boggling it how, how did you get your voice heard it first of all? was hard and it was it was difficult um and I won't pretend that it wasn't I'm not, I can't sit here and go yeah it was great and mm. you know it was easy I think that there were a number of factors at play I think it may have been weird for a lot of those people to see me when they had grown up around me or when I'd grown up around them in that world equally at the time that I came in we had a new influx I think of quite a few new team principals as well so some of them hadn't known me from when I was very little a lot of them though had known me from when I was working and I suppose that transition would have been hard for them as much as for me to suddenly see me now at the table rather Mm. than just holding a dictaphone in the ball ring with the with the drivers after a race or a session it was probably even harder for the people working in the team to suddenly have me being their boss because even more of those people had known me since I was probably not even born. They'd been working for my Mm. dad. And suddenly, you know, Frank's daughter, who used to run around causing trouble and stealing stuff from the stationery cupboard, was their boss and running the Mm. team. So I think there was quite a lot of transition for a lot of people, me being put in that role. And, and obviously, you know, not least for me, psychologically, I had to very quickly change how I thought about my role. And I've always been quite deferential as an individual and very, been brought up to be very well-mannered, very respectful. You know, almost you speak when spoken to in a paddock. Mm. That's how I was brought up and particularly around the very important, you know, power people in Formula One. And so to be at that table was always quite hard work for me. I always, I didn't have panic attacks, but I always used to get a lot of anxiety before having to go to those meetings. Mm. And particularly, invariably, they were held in either Paris or Geneva. So I was always having to travel. And that never makes life very easy when you just want calm before a meeting like that. But I would always, I would always have to sit there and give myself a talking to before and go, I have every right to be at this table. Well, I was about to ask you, what was your self-talking? Yeah. How, how, did you, how did you sort of psych yourself up to go into yeah. these meetings to make sure that yeah. you didn't just sort of yeah. get rolled over. In the, in yeah, the it was a lot of, you know, 
some stern conversations prior. I have every right to be around that table. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of deep breathing. So you had every right to be around that table. And when you said it, did you believe it? It took me a long time um, to even actually understand it rather than just believe it. Mm. I believed it towards the end of my career, like the last four or five years. But the first, I think, first couple of years, I was in a bit of shock still that I was actually around that table. And it took me quite a while to get my find my voice. I even still struggle with that. And I think that's one of my, I suppose, my regrets that I wasn't braver i tried to be as brave as i could because my my only real reason and purpose for being in that meeting was to look after protect and be a voice for my team and at the end of the day that's what always saw me through so whenever i did need to speak or whether when i was asked to speak when i could get a word in edgeways to speak i always had that in the back of my head it was my you know i have to do this for my team i have to be brave i have to put myself out there and it doesn't matter if I say something stupid, but I've got to get my point across. Sure. So, I mean, so fighting to have your voice heard in, you know, these the, the FIA meetings or the meetings with the other team principals is one thing. But did you have a similar fight internally within your own company trying to make your own voice heard where you are running this company? Or was it not quite the same? I think it took me time to understand that I was actually the boss mm. and I didn't need to keep asking for permission. And it was actually a very good piece of advice my CEO gave me when something had happened and I was like, oh, I'm going about a decision I needed to make or something. I can't remember the exact um, scenario. And he said, Claire, just get on and do it. He said, you need to get out of the mindset of asking permission and start asking for forgiveness. Make your, make your decision. It's your decision. You're the boss. You're entitled to do it. And if anyone's got a problem with it, apologize if you want to, but it's your path and it's your journey. And you, you're the one that's got to, got to stand by your decisions and be brave enough to make them. And that was the best bit of advice I could have been given transitioning from being, you know, the press officer or head of comms and the boss's daughter to actually running the business now. And I had a big responsibility. I was quite young when I took over and I certainly stepped into my role as I matured in age and probably experience. And were you one of the younger team principals anyway, set aside yeah, being female, right? So I was. Um, yeah. I can't. I mean, I was 36, I right. think, when I, and mm. that's really quite young, I yeah. think, to have that res- level of responsibility. How many employees? On your shoulders. At the time, we had about 600 yeah. um, on the F1 side, but we were also an advanced engineering business at that time. We had that within our umbrella and within the group. And that at the time had about 150. By the time I um, stepped away from the business, there were 300 odd in advanced engineering. And then there were 700 in, um, on the F1 side. So about 1,000 yeah. people working. So you've got about 1,000 employees mm. and you're, you know, so you're still relatively young. Yeah. Okay. Um, when you, I mean, I say relative for a team principal yeah. position, right? Yeah. Um, so it's an awful lot of responsibility. And on top of that, female in a man's yeah. environment. Yeah. Can I also say the other mm. one other thing sure. that I always wished for that I think would have made my life easier? I was I'm short, I'm quite short. I'm five foot four, and I think if I'd have been five foot nine, I think my life would have been easier. I would have felt more powerful. I think. I think when you have more of a physical presence anywhere, and I know this. I hope this doesn't upset people that are five foot four and below. But I always felt that if I'd have had um, a bit more height about me, I could have been more commanding. And I know that may sound silly, but it's mm. something that really bothered me. So I used to walk around in enormous stilettos pretty much every day of my working life. And in fact, someone even made this point to me when I first started. 
when we were at the race weekend, we walk around in team kit and the team kit comes with trainers. So I was always in trainers. So I would suddenly go from being about 5'7 in the office because I was wearing stilettos <laughs> to, to missing to, to five foot four. <laughs> half of me had disappeared. And someone said to me, oh, you should really think about wearing heels with your team kit, Claire. You need to be taller. And I was like, my God, that's so rude. Mm. You know, and they, it came from a really nice place. It, it didn't come from someone being rude or sure. critical. They were just trying to be helpful. But it goes to the point, doesn't it, that having a presence, having some, you know, bit of height would have helped. As a so female. I felt that it was a disadvantage to me. As a female, right? Because, Probably, yeah. I mean, if you look at, but I mean, how tall is Bernie Eccleston? Well, yeah, exactly. Pretty but, powerful, right? Yeah. And there are a lot of small men in Formula One. Exactly. That, you know, have been successful. I think it, that was in my head. Yeah. And it was actually just more the transitioning piece for me. Mm. All the things that, you know, you think about in hindsight and you go, oh, that would have been nice. It probably, it probably was in your head, right? In the sense that um, if that's what you felt you needed to do, right? And, and as, you know, the whole, what's, gonna, what's quite interesting about this, and I'm going to get onto it, it's just that mental mastery, just trying to, control your own thoughts and because that will project to the outside world and yeah. how you deal with it right yeah exactly so i mean so as a tp as a mm. female um i mean did, was there any other treatment for example if you brought your family to races is that oh, sort of, you know how, how would how would that be viewed is it any differently yeah. to anyone else or um it wasn't viewed well um and i got quite a lot of comments on that because you know obviously i spent most of my time up until i met my now husband um and being pretty much, you know, I had boyfriends, but, you know, I was, I was always seen, I think, by myself because my job was very much my focus. And so when I was working, that was all I did. And I worked really long hours. You know, I was, you know, my job was my life. And, um, and then I, I got married and I had my son who actually came, you know, I didn't have my little boy till I was 40 and I left it very late. I left it late because I hadn't met the right person. And because I was in Formula One and when you're in Formula One, you make sacrifices and it's incredibly hard work. And when you're traveling on top of that, it's tough for mm. a woman to have a child and to think when's the right time to do it. And that was always a conundrum. And how did you time that? Because were you away from any races when you when you? Had, yes, I didn't get pregnant and time it because I actually had left sure. it so late. It was just like, thank yeah. God, hallelujah, it's happened. Yeah. You know, and I wasn't going to go right. I'm going to have. What's the calendar again? Yeah, exactly. So I can have my baby in the August break and then yeah. get back in yeah. time for you know whatever Singapore, whatever comes after yeah. the August break. Um, but it did, was. But did you miss races? I did. I missed. A, my little boy was born October, so right. I, I finished the European season and then I missed the rest of the year. But then I was back to do the car launch in January, so I had three and a half months out um for for the whole thing yeah. and at the same t during that period i had a baby i got married planned a wedding and moved house okay. so i took so my not maternity much going on, no i, I <laughs> used my maternity leave well but it was really difficult because i continued to travel and run the team but in order to make that my family life work as a new mum and a new wife i needed to bring them to the racetrack occasionally i was very lucky i could do that and I understood very clearly that most people, the majority of people in Formula One can't do that. They have to make the ultimate sacrifice. They have to leave their husband or wife and children at home and they miss them. But I was in a fortuitous position where I could take them. And so I chose to take Mark. He worked for the team as well. He That's brought in, yes, yeah. sorry, a lot of money um, on our through our driver academy, yeah, millions he brought in. Um, and running the young drivers when they were at the track with us. And then I would bring Nate, our little boy, to probably 
six to eight races, so not even half the races. Did that add to the stress and pressure of the job, right? You're already dealing with a, a, a very difficult situation. Yeah, you? it did. Because, you know, my husband was by my side throughout everything. He was there in the beginning when we were successful. You know, the, the third was successful. We weren't winning, but we had some brilliant times in mm. 14, 15 and 16. And then he was by my side through thick and thin in you know, the latter years when it was really difficult. And yep. As much as I had brilliant support around me mm. through my CEO and my other board members and we were at races together, if my husband hadn't been there for when I got back to my hotel room and I took off my team kit and I just sat and breathed and just had five minutes of, you know, just downtime and actually, you know, probably upset time because it was really hard. Um, I don't know what I would have done. And, and people, I think, take that for granted or they underestimate how important actually sometimes it can be for somebody to have that kind of person by their side. Mm. And I wouldn't have got through it without Mark. And he had to he had to put up with a lot. He saw people, you know, not being great towards me, not behaving particularly well. He saw the stress that I was having to deal with. He went through it all and yet got criticised for standing by my side, which isn't, wow. which isn't great. So every day, I mean, down at, it doesn't sound like the experience, the race experience was a great one for you. Like, oh, fantastic, another week away. <laughs> yeah. No, it, no, it was. It was. That's the thing. Yeah. It was so interrupted, but it was, I loved it. Mm. Even in those, you know, the, the really the difficult times, times right. I loved it. I lived and breathed it, and it was the best thing. It was my life. It was mm. my world, and I miss it enormously. Yeah, it wasn't easy, but I always loved a challenge as well. Um, I think I was quite like my dad in that sense. My mum always used to say my dad was my my dad was never happier when the shit was hitting the fan because it gave him a challenge. <laughs> yeah. and, you know that that brings you know you to life, doesn't it? When you've got a bit of adversity and yeah. you need to fix things, and I like fixing things, and so I always quite enjoyed trying to figure out those kind of puzzles. Well, you certainly had a challenge um, at, at Williams. You know the the rules changed, and it just shows you right even now. You know Williams. You know they've got the whole lot of resource behind them now. Um, and it's not, it's not flying, right? It's not a case of just throw money in, change the management, and away we go. It's, no. it's obviously not as easy as it, it may seem from the outside. I mean, yeah. how, whilst you were there running the team, and it's all sort of you know falling down around you, you know the rules are changing, um, resources aren't quite there. Mm. Um, I mean, how are you, how are you dealing with that? You know, how are you sort of waking up every day thinking, you know what? tomorrow we're going to attack this or what was going on in your head when it seemed like the shit was hitting the fan which it was yeah um it was i i always got i enjoyed it i know that sounds maybe a bit weird and maybe a little perverse because you shouldn't but i really relished i think the challenge of trying to fix it and i think i enjoyed it because i cared so much and so deeply about the team but I could also see it working. I faced some, when I kind of put all my things in place, faced some adversity and some people that didn't really like it and whatever. And I came against some opposition for what I was doing. But I knew it was going to work. And I had real belief that what we were doing was going to change things. And it was going to take time, but it was going to work, you know, eventually. And you just got to kind of plod through it. Some days it felt like you're just wading through treacle and just nothing was changing. Um, I just knew that if we just kept going, it would. And if we kept doing things day by day by day, step by step, things would change. Unfortunately, the one setback that we always had was money. 
and we just never had enough of it. And you mentioned now, obviously, with the new owners, they've ploughed a huge amount of money in. And yes, they're not having, I suppose, this, you know, the yeah. first race has just happened sure. and I'm sure they're probably disappointed, yeah. but it doesn't just take money. It takes a lot of other stuff around. So as much as you know, money was a big thing, but we were able to make strides, strides forward without necessarily that money. But if I'd have had the money that I know that the new owners are putting in, oh my God, I would have just, it would have made life so much easier for yeah. us. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, I mean, with you running the team up until, you know, you have obviously selling the team, and we'll come on to that in a moment, but with a new owner coming in, seeing them dealing with the same issues, having the same struggles and battles, does it sort of, in a sense, make you feel, do you know what, it wasn't me, it, it wasn't me, I wasn't the reason why yeah. things went wrong here, it's not easy, this actually makes me realise that I was giving it a flipping damn good shot, and it's not about yeah. money, it's not about whatever, there is a process of, you know. Yeah, there is. There's definitely that. And I think, you know, I can look at it and I feel a small amount of kind of almost exoneration mm. that, you know, there's a new boss and he's had this and he's they've got loads of money and they're still struggling. And I hate seeing the team struggle. It's yeah, not what you want to see at all. I want to see them do well. Um, but it does show it. It's not as easy as people think. Mm. And I think people thought, when I was in charge, you know, they got the wrong person. You know, they should have put her brother in charge or they should have done this. You know, I had calls from, you know, journalists saying, oh, she needs to step down. And and fine, people are absolutely entitled to their opinion. But, and the bucks always stops with the leader and I would hold my hands up to that. But there are also a lot of other people involved in that, in an organisation, any organisation. And everybody has to be at the top of their game. Mm doing what they need to do in order for success to be achieved, particularly at that level of success, where if you've even got just one wheel that's out of whack, then you're going to be, you know, falling off the rails and and not in great shape. So, um, I don't know. I also as well know that the buck did stop with me. I know that I made mistakes and hindsight is a wonderful thing. And I talk about this with Mark an awful lot. What would I have changed? Did I make that decision wrong? Should I have not done that? Should I have done this? And it's so easy sat there and, and looking at life with those kinds of you know glasses on because it's hindsight mm. and you're armed with different facts. I made decisions at the time that I was running the team with all the facts that I had available to me. I had board members that I always discussed things with, et cetera, et cetera. I made the decisions in an environment that were difficult, but I always made decisions that I thought were the right ones for the team. And I hope people would understand that because you know, the team is my family and everyone knows how much I love that team. Um, and so I always try to make the right decision. I never willingly went out and gone, I'm going to do that. Sure, you went reckless, on. right? No. Tune in next week for part two of Claire Williams on Didn't Get the Memo.